Good morning. Grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for being here today and joining us. And if you're watching online, thanks for clicking on the link. And if you're watching online or you're here, just want to make a quick announcement. It might have already been said, actually. We are trying to, and we, we had this on the video earlier in the week, we're trying to restructure our foyer a little bit to make it easier for moms with little babbling babies. We're doing this because we took the nursery from you. We don't have a nursery right now because of COVID. And so we, we kind of put moms in this little bit of a sticky area where they, they, they feel a little nervous having their kids in an area where the kids are going to make noises. Um, and so we wanted to give it, uh, may, maybe build a, a spot for you, whether you are a mom or a husband and you've got the baby, you don't want to be a distraction to others. Personally, it doesn't bother me at all. I've preached through the best of them. Some kids with their lungs have really tried to throw me and they've not been able to do it. But I know it's, it's tough for you. Um, it doesn't mean that you are a bad parent if you do that either, by the way. It means that your kids um, are working if they make a noise. If they make noises, that means everything's working just like it's supposed to work. And so we just wanted to make that spot for you so you are comfortable. Um, so anyway, grab your Bible. And we're going to jump into First Peter here in a second. And Happy New Year. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I know we're all done talking about how we're limping into this from last year, otherwise known as last week. And I know when the average person says Happy New Year, what they really mean is we hope this next year is better than the last. We hope that you have a good year, a happy year, a productive year, a year full of wealth, a year full of luck, people say, right? That's what we, that's what we think. But so much can wreck that. So much, even this week, could happen to you to put you in a place where you say, well, I was having a happy new year. No longer is it very happy. But I'm going to tell you today, and I'm going to hopefully prove to you through the scriptures, through this series, that you can have your best year this year. This could be your best year. Your happiest new year could be 2021. And I, and I know I sound like a prosperity message communicator or preacher whenever I say this could be your best year, you could live your best life in this best year, but I'm going to say you can do it not because things are going well for you in this year, but because your hopes and your dreams are attached somewhere else. That you could have your best new year not because things are going well for you, but you can actually have your happiest new year despite what is happening around you. Even if you lose your job, you could have a happy new year. Even if you're one of those unicorns that, get COVID, that gets COVID twice, and the vaccine didn't work, right? You're one of those rare cases. This could still be your best year. If you are lonely and emotional uh, instability, mental problems finds you a little quicker than the people around you, this could be your best new year, right? Your joy, your happiness can be attached elsewhere, which is why we're starting this new book, First Peter. It's a, it's a letter, really it's a sermon, it's like a manuscript, that Peter wrote to a church that was scattered all over what on the map is Turkey today, right? And these were non-Jews, these were Gentiles, they weren't real familiar with Jewish customs. Um, they were people just like you and me, which is why I think it's going to be a helpful book for us. They were on lockdown, separated from each other, relationally distant from who they used to see. They were emotionally detached and disjointed from themselves. They didn't have a clear view of what forward looked like. Everything was kind of a fog for them. They weren't sure where to put their hopes, their dreams. So 
what Peter does is he pastors these churches really well. And I, I hope to do the same thing for you as we walk through this book. And, and I just want to say as a quick reminder, when we go through books of the Bible, and I think this is our 14th or 15th one to go from stem to stern through, when we do this, there's a design behind it. We really think through where legacy is at, where our city is at, and what the scripture holds for us. And I have to say this every time we start a new book, and I'm fine with that. Every word of your Bible is inspired by God. But not every word is inspiring for every moment that you're in. There are some moments where pieces of your Bible will be more relevant and more inspiring than others, which is, there's nothing wrong with saying that. That's why you're glad we're not starting Lamentations today, right? This is not as inspiring as some other things we could go through. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, inspired this Bible by speaking and working through men of old to write them down. And the exact same Spirit of God will illuminate the very same Scripture to make sense to you. Right? And we all get this, which is why you read a passage of Scripture and it doesn't make a lot of meaningful impact. It's good. You would even say, yeah, this is good. This, this is good for them. It makes sense to me. I like it. It's helpful. But then the very next year, it totally changes your life. Same passage. You, you get it tattooed on your arm. It meant so much to you. It's, wh wh why did that happen? Because it was always inspired by God, but the Holy Spirit will illuminate that passage for you, for that moment, in that situation. You know, First Peter it didn't fall on deaf ears when it was originally heard. When it was originally spoken out loud by whoever was an overseer of that church. And I just don't think it's going to fall on deaf ears for us. Not today. One of the prayers, and we're going to pray here in just a second, is that the Holy Spirit would illuminate these passages for you and me. Illuminate what's already inspired. Because listen, I long for the days where the pandemic is not even a word we use anymore. Where it just grows dust. Something that we... We, we reminisce on maybe in 20 years. But I, I honestly long for days where this room is full again. <laughs> and not, not, not just with people, but with maskless people. I long for the day where we could eat in dining rooms again, where small businesses come back again. But this is what we have. This is what we have. Legacy is scattered all over the metro area. Some of you have lost work. Many are navigating how to raise families how to groom our marriages, how to have date night, how to retire financially free, struggling emotionally. Most of us are lonely. So this book, 1 Peter, is going to be perfect for us where we're at right now. Perfect. Perfect to address our dashed hopes and our dashed and distracted marriages and our cracked relationships, and our unclear future, and our really, really heavy hearts. Because God, through Peter, is going to remind us of who we are, and why we're here, and where we're going, and what to do with this thing we call hope. So let's jump in. We're only going to get two, two verses deep in our work today. Listen, we're not going to do two verses every week. Don't freak out. It'd take us like five years to get through this. But this sets up the framework for the entire letter of 1 Peter, so it does require a little bit of specific attention. And this is the word of the Lord for us, and we will see Christ very clearly. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in 
Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There's a lot of applications for this. I'm going to pick one main idea out, and that is that we are home, but we're not really home. We're exiles, right? We dwell here, but we don't totally fit in here, honestly, right? I mean, my Bible says exiles. Some of your Bibles will say strangers or sojourners or pilgrims. It kind of depends on the version that you're reading from. Probably most of us it says exile. It's just a temporary resident. Someone that's passing through with a passport, moving, not really sitting still. Usually when we use the word exile today, we usually think of disasters like displaced people, uh, maybe like Gilligan's Island, right? They were exiled to this island or we think of a, a sad refugee camp or we might even think in punishment. They were exiled from the family. They were exiled from the nation, which is why maybe stranger or sojourner is probably a better word for this. And when I think about how we see these terms today and these thoughts and ideas today, think of a work visa. That might be one of the better, more accurate ways you can look at this. Someone who is working but not looking to really set up shop for the rest of their lives, right? A work visa. This is how the Bible explains you. This is how the Bible understands you. If you are in Christ, you are not home. You're in exile. You're a stranger. This is how the author of Hebrews phrases it, and we're not going to turn there. But when he talks about the, the, the heroes of the faith, those with this robust faith, those who did these crazy, miraculous things with their faith, he says that they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on earth. We see it all the time through the Old Testament. We'll look at that in weeks to come. But what I want you to see is wherever your address is today, whatever you call your hometown, whether it's Knoxville or some other city, wherever is home to you, you need to know it's not home. This is not our home. We're passing through. There is no alternative in the Bible's eyes. We are exiled travelers. And I think there's an aspect of this that we love, right? There's a little piece of this that we resonate with quickly. We like the idea that we're detached from everything around us. It makes us feel very strong and independent. When I was putting this sermon together, I started humming this song whenever I was typing this out. And then I realized it, it was a White Snake song from 1982. And this, this lyric came to, the, to my mind, like a drifter I was born to walk alone. See, I almost can't even read it. I almost sing it, right? It's hard to say that. You almost have to sing it. <laughs> Some of you closet White Snake fans in the room. We like the idea of being strong and free from obligations, from each other, from this world. But if we're being honest, we're kind of allergic to being exiles. We don't really, really like it. We like the idea of it. We don't like the reality of it. For, for most of us, this world, it's all we got. We treat this world and this place as it is everything that we have. And all of our hope is here. And everything that is today matters. It matters of big, big weight. This is what happens to us when we can't stop thinking about what other people think about us. Which is why we keep going back to look and see who has liked this post. Who is following me. This is what we are doing. We're not thinking about our acceptance and our approval in another home 
We're thinking about it right here. This is what's happening when we, when we uh, count our money and we think about what will it take to get more money? What will it take to take care of myself here? We stop thinking about treasures in our home and we start thinking about our treasures here with a deep fascination. This is what's happening whenever we lose something valuable but we act like we've lost our life. I mean, you just take a stroll through YouTube and you will see people losing their mind in Walmart over whatever is the fad to buy right now, punching each other to take something from their cart and to relocate it into your car. What is happening there? Were they, were they poorly parented? Maybe. Are they, are they improperly emoting? Most certainly. But they're also acting like their whole life is being taken from them. That's a life or death moment, whether you agree with it or not. And most of us don't. That's why they're acting the way that they act. This moment is everything. This thing is everything. This second in time is everything. And if you're a Christian and you treat this world as if it is everything, you're a little less of an exile and a little bit more of an immigrant. You've not just come to work and leave. You've come to work and stay. This is home. This is what Paul calls conforming to this world. You'd find that in Romans 12. Where he says, do not conform, but be transformed. And this is what John says in 1 John when he discusses and charges us not to love the world. Not to love it. Not, not in a, he's not talking about not being endeared to the people of the world, but not to love the value system of this world. Because it's fading away and all of the values in it. Fading away. The reason they have to speak on this phenomenon is because you and I, we do love to conform we do value what the world values, or else they wouldn't have to say these things over and over again. This is an issue for all of us. We want to conform. We want to fit in. We want to value what the world values. All of us do. The problem is being an exile is really a life of extraction. We're being extracted from this world, out of sync with the world's value system. And that's uncomfortable to be out of sync. It's uncomfortable. And what it does is it affects our joy. And the only way we're going to have a happy new year is everything around us works out in a happy way, right? It affects our joy and our peace in this world. And I'll be honest with you, and we'll, we'll just talk about this for a second. It affects what kind of a missionary you'll be, how you'll be on mission to this city. You see, we want to be in sync, not out of sync. We want to be in sync with this world so that it loves us. But any missionary that demands approval and acceptance from the people they're carrying a message to will be largely ineffective. Largely ineffective. To be a missionary that is adored means that that missionary has to alter their message or <laughs> delete parts of their message. And that's a big temptation for all of us, right? To be so culturally relevant that we outrun with our relevance, we outrun the world catching up and figuring out what we really believe. Maybe we could get them to, maybe we could misdirect their attention because of how relevant we are. But listen, if I became the most gifted communicator in the world, the most sought after and adored communicator in the world, and The View had me on often, but I had to get out of there because I had to get to Jimmy Fallon's that night, you know, and The Roots are playing my walkout music, and the studios adored me, and I looked relevant, and, and I sounded relevant, and I used these pithy little you know, vague one-liners that don't really say anything, and they all applauded me, and they all loved me, and they all adored me, all they'd have to do is ask me about abortion. And then the air leaves the room. There would be audible gasps in the studio. 
All they'd have to do is ask me about certain agendas, whether it's LGBTQ or gender agendas that we would see in high schools like this one, and I would be canceled. That's all they'd have to do. All someone would have to do is look across the table and say, do you think all people are going to heaven? And then the air would leave the room. Just ask me my views on sex before marriage. I'd get mocked on Saturday Night Live that week. It would take them about six minutes to put a sketch together on that. See, it's just not going to take long for the world to find what my no-fly zone is. And then all of a sudden, the applause is going to turn into trolling. And the same is true for you. You want to know why? This is not our home. We do not fit. We are strangers in this world. And to the degree that the church tries to fit in and be adored will be the degree that it loses its missionary value. And I'm not talking about being understandable or comprehensible to those who are far from Jesus. I'm talking about being so relevant and so hip that we don't even teach what the Bible teaches. We don't even extend what, what Christ built for us to extend. And listen, broadly, broadly, church capital C, at least in the West, it's trending to become more of a passenger as culture drives the bus, right? And I'm not talking about just the emergent church, which they're always gooey around the edges. I'm talking about the mainline evangelical church. I'm talking about what is mainstream. It's kind of an arms race to see who can outwoke the church down the street. Not because they love the lost, it's because they want to be adored and approved. They want to be loved and applauded. And this is nothing more than just forgetting that we're exiles here with a work visa, and this is not our home. It's not our home. The good news is, is in places like China and Africa, mainline evangelical denominations are exploding. Lutherans, Baptists, I'm talking mainline. They are exploding at a much steeper growth curve than we are here in the States. And yet, they're resisting the Western world's cultural drift. They're resisting it because they're not in the Western world. And some, in fact, are breaking away from their American counterparts. That's fascinating. Listen, if I asked you which country in the world had the most Lutherans, most of you would probably say Germany because that's where it started, and that's true. Number one country as far as population of Lutherans is Germany. Number two, Ethiopia. Number three, Tanzania. Lutheranism is no longer a European phenomenon, not even close. In fact, one Methodist leader in Liberia is also a seminary dean. He says this, the church has taken on a strangely new direction. People from the country that brought the gospel to us are now preaching a different gospel. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's widely considered to be true by missiologists and sociologists and anthropologists that Africa and China, those two nations specifically, hold the best chances of desecularizing the global church. The global church. How are they going to do that? Not allowing Western culture to drive what they teach and what they practice. Listen, even if Legacy Church feeds every poverty-stricken household and we foster every kid without a home and we drive our hybrids to every march that's going on downtown, even if we do that, it will never applaud this church for very long. It just won't do it. Not if we're exporting the gospel. Not if we're carrying a message of light into places of utter darkness. Because your gospel is a very, 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 very offensive story inside of a very, very, very offensive book. I mean, just think about the gospel, what it, why it's offensive. It says that you're not a God, first of all. 
you're not a God, that you're not right, that you're flawed, that there's blood on your hands, that you're guilty, that you do shameful things, that you think shameful things. And then it has the nerve to go on and say that you can't fix it, that you can't roll up your sleeves, you can't clean yourself, you can't do enough to make your righteousness up there, it's something that God would love and adore and accept into family. So you need a savior. You need a hero. And so you have to repent from a very real sin to a very real God. And that's offensive. And that's, that's the centerpiece of an offensive book that has words on gender and the value of a baby. It has words on these things that are now being considered hate speech. It's important. It's important to know that as long as God is interested in being light to a dark world, you will be in exile here. Hand in hand. This is why he says in John 3, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. If you want to build a gospel-nurturing, gospel-saturated marriage, household, business, if that's what you want to do, you will never be applauded. Not in this world. You'll be judged. You'll be mocked, lied about, slandered, canceled. You will be persecuted. Just like the church that Peter's speaking to. And listen, if you need more of a proof that that is exactly what would happen, ask the church, and the book of Acts. Ask them. Watch it. You know what they'll say to you? This isn't our home. It's not our home. That's for some of us. I think for others of us, it's not that this world means everything. It's that it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. You probably heard the last few minutes of me ranting right there and felt justified by it, right? You refuse to invest yourself in this world it's so much easier to condescend as we look on from our perches as the whole world is on fire. This is why it's easy for a lot of us to have zero concern for civil matters. You don't even know what's going on in the city. You don't know what's going on in your neighborhood. Don't even know their names. Don't have any idea of what it looks like for Knoxville to grow in Christ. You have no idea of what it means. You, you don't know who to vote for. You don't even vote. You don't petition. You don't protest. You don't fight. You don't invest. You don't host. You don't befriend. You don't risk yourself. You don't speak up. You're just as much an absent missionary. Maybe not an immigrant. Maybe more of a tourist who's just loitering. Just here. No purpose. Just waiting. And if this is not you, you've probably been around people like this, right? Just waiting, waiting for the rapture, I guess. Locking the doors down. Complaining about the next generation. <laughs> Go to services. Watch the world burn as we shake our heads. Listen, there's a book that came out 350 years ago. John Bunyan wrote it. It's called The Pilgrim's Pro Progress. You might have read it. If you haven't, it'd be a good read. You could probably get it for free on Amazon. It's an allegory. In fact, I don't know if you know this, this is the very first novel ever written in the English language. It's an old work. And what Bunyan did is he wrote an allegory on the path from one place to another. The main character, his name is Christian, right? Super creative, big thinking out of the box there. That was a little less allegorical. A little bit just meant just calling him a Christian. But that's the guy's name. And he's going from the city of destruction, home, or the world, all the way to 
the next home, which is the celestial city, his true home. And the whole, the whole story is this cool little interaction with different people and places as the journey, it describes the Christian journey from one city to the next, right? It's a good read. But the biggest critique against this, and it's okay to critique it, it's not the Bible, right? He's just a guy is we don't see so much of this traveler, Christian, investing deeply where he's at. He just keeps moving. No, no moss growing on that guy. He's not clocking in day in and day out for the same people in the same place. He just keeps moving. That's not how John Bunyan lived. That's just how the book reads, right? So I will say this is not your home, and I'll balance it with this is your place, though, and these are your people, and this is your time. Which is why Jesus says, as he's praying to his father in John 17, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. They're exiles. Just as I am not of this world, as he was exiled. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is praying that we would be fully invested, but not fully conformed to the world. We would be fully invested in this time and place for this people but not fully conformed. I think some of us struggle with this and we look at the world with disdain, with a little bit of a secret hunger that everyone's going to get theirs because it might maybe vindicate us or make us feel vindicated, feel better than the dirty people of the world. That's why you might catch yourself being angry that people aren't behaving as if they had the Holy Spirit. (laughs) They're not going to behave like they have the Holy Spirit because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you catch yourself complaining about a world gone mad rather than praying for the world gone mad, this might be you. Because no, adopting culture, that's definitely not the answer. But abandoning culture is not the answer either. It's not the answer either. Because we're not immigrants here to stay, but we're definitely not tourists lowering and just waiting for God to come back at the same time. None of this comes naturally. And listen, this is how we know this. Because the guy that wrote this letter, he himself denied Christ trying to do what? Be a little bit less of an exile. Trying to fit in. Investing where the, where the world felt value was. Wanting to be approved. Wanting to be safe. He understands what he's writing right now. When, when we read exile, he gets it. So if this is so hard, how do we keep our lives from turning in this direction? From loitering. How do we do this? I think the first thing is to recognize that our hero who has gone before us also sojourned. He didn't loiter with no purpose. He didn't come as an immigrant. He didn't come as a tourist. He traveled with one purpose, his work visa. On it, it stated that he would come and live perfectly, die passionately for the glory of the Father and for the redemption of the cosmos. That's what he came to do. But even more, the freedom that that gives you and me. I mean, it says here, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's more than a salutation. That's how we read it. Because that's how a lot of the letters start, right? Or finish. May grace and peace be, it's like a handshake almost or a high five. But it's more than this. In fact, I might even go as far as to say that is the theme for the whole letter. That grace And peace be multiplied to us. That's the exile's reality. We didn't used to have these things. Instead of peace, we had turbulence with God, war with God and each other. Without grace, 
We had performance. We had to impress God, impress each other. We don't have to do that anymore. Grace and peace did not just visit you when you became a Christian. It is multiplied towards you. As Christian says in the Pilgrim's Progress, my name is Christian, but it used to be graceless. But grace and peace are multiplied to where our lives are different. You are now free, totally free, to invest yourself without conforming and bending your life to look like culture. Because here, here what is the world going to take away from you? What can it take from you? I mean, just look at the heart of God for you and me in this. There was a Trinitarian effort. You probably caught this when we read through it at the beginning of the service. There's the Father's design, meaning that we were elect before time, before time began ticking. He chose, he selected, he chased us knowing how we would live, knowing how we would perform, knowing how unimpressive we would be. There was design in it. But then there's a washing, a sanctification by the Holy Spirit. And then we would see the blood of Jesus sprinkled that would cleanse away our sins, justifying us in the eyes of God. There's a combined collaborative thoughtfulness and care. There's a combined involvement. This is God's thought for you, for you individually, not just for mankind, but you individually. This was the depths of his love. This is the brilliance of the cooperation of the Trinity of God for you, for you. And if this is how thoughtful he was for us in our salvation, how much more for 2021, for this new year? Because does this sound like the kind of God that takes his eye off his treasure, that takes his hands off his kids, that abandons us? No. Listen, you've got nothing to lose. This world will tell you that if you're going to be in exile, you have everything to lose. Oh, you've got so much to lose. You've got nothing to lose. This life is a vapor. This place is a layover. It's a place between places. You are free to be in the shape of Jesus. And you are free from bending your life to mimic culture. I mean, if I had one application for those of us in this room who would call themselves Christians, where do you feel like you have so much to lose in this world? Where is it that you feel like being in exile will cost you the most? If something was deleted from your life overnight, would it reveal that you've put your hopes in the wrong places? That this, in fact, is all you have? What would that look like for you? I've had to ask myself the same question. And then what is before us that requires an exile's posture? What is requiring courage from you? discipline, sacrifice from you. If you can imagine yourself in Peter's moment where they're saying, hey, you belong to Jesus, don't you? And him, and him saying, no, not just no, and not just emphatically no, but triple, triple, in, <laughs> he was emphatic, I am not connected to him. Where is that for you? What is calling for you to step into it with all of your strength as an exile, with a work visa, ready to get into it, ready to invest yourself, because you've got nothing to lose? but you're not doing it. You're not doing it. I would submit that you just meditate on home. And not just home, but the price tag that got us there. This is not our home. It's not. And then maybe for some of us, where do you condescendingly judge people without God's spirit? Who have you decided in your life they're not worth it anymore? They're not worth it. I'm done with them. I'm done with this city. I'm done with this people group. I'm done with this situation. I'm just done. 
I want you to meditate on who, not just how, who Jesus sojourned to connect to. As failed as we were, as unimpressive as we were. And listen, if you're watching or if you're here and you would say that you are far from Christ, let me just say that grace and peace that is only bound up and possible through Jesus. Grace and peace. Right? And likely you probably don't feel like you fit in either. Even if you're far from Christ, you've probably felt like you're stuck between places, in exile, a stranger, yourself. But the rest from the turmoil that you have with God, the rest from the turmoil that you have with others, the peace that comes from not having to perform anymore to get God's liking of you or his love of you, that is bound up in the person and the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. So I would just submit that you bow to his care and ask the Holy Spirit to wash your heart, to pull the scales from your eyes, to thank God that his blood through his son is sufficient to wash away all of your sins and to trust in this very God. You know, if you just ask for these things, if you just ask for God to give you eyes to see and give you a will to trust, he'll, he'll do it. He'll do it. Just ask him. So let's go ahead and stand because what I'd like to do is just finish this time with communion. Instead of finishing the sermon and then going into communion, I'd like to finish the sermon with communion. And if you didn't grab one of these cups, someone will bring them in here in a second. And uh, thank you, Caleb. Caleb has got these elements there. If you need one, just raise your hand and he'll get it to you. Listen, if you're not a Christian, don't worry about taking this. This is just something that we do as a family of God, legacy or not legacy. This is something that we do as Christians where we gather around what we call the common table. I would just submit that you consider the gospel and investing your life in the gospel. But if you are here, even if you're not a part of legacy or you're watching online and you're not a part of legacy, I'd love to invite you into this moment. We didn't have time to get into what it means when it says the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Listen, if that sounds weird, it's supposed to sound weird, right? That's not normal, that language. It's definitely not language we use today, but there's deep meaning behind it. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament when the priests of old would slaughter an animal and sprinkle a part of the blood over the people, which again is weird. Agreed? And it's not normal, and it's kind of, it'll get your attention, and it's supposed to. Because little did they know that long down, long down, there would be another sacrifice, a perfect lamb, who would also be the perfect priest. The last sacrifice, there would also be the last priest. The last king would give his life and his blood would not just be sprinkled over us, but would cover all of our sins. Not just temporarily until the next ceremony, but forever and evermore. And that's what we celebrate with communion. Right? So let's take this bread. Jesus says that this is my body given to you. So let's pray through that. Father, we thank you that your body was broken, that it was marred, that it was trashed in such a way that you were unrecognizable. And because you made yourself unrecognizable, we are recognized as family. You were defiled. You were shamed and mocked so that we would be called treasured children. So we remember that as we take this bread.
And then Matthew 26. Jesus says, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There will be a day, a day where we're not traveling anymore, a day where we're not sojourners, we're not pilgrims, no more work visas. We're not temporary. We are full-time residents in a place that space was made for us. A chair was left for us at a banqueting table where we get to experience the close family of God for the rest of eternity, for the rest of eternity. And so when we take this and we drink it, it is with that in mind. So Father, we thank you for this. Thank you for your blood that was spilt for us, that was planned before time began. It was made possible before the stars were thrown. You've done this for us. We take this in your name. And Father, I pray for those of us in this room that are looking for grace and peace. We're so tired of performing to be impressive to God. So tired of performing so that we can be impressive to others. Always performing. Always performing. Always trying to look impressive. God, that your grace is your favor towards us, totally despite us. That your grace removes our performance. Lord, it feels so good to live a life like that. And that peace has come to us because of a broken body and spilt blood and the deep sacrifice of you giving your son. War has stopped. Not because we're good at not throwing rocks anymore, but because you stilled the war at your cost even though we started it. You are so good to give us peace and give us grace. So we celebrate that. We ask that you would give us a sense of your grace and a sense of your peace today, even those of us in the room who've never tasted it before. Lord, that you would change hearts, whether they're watching or present, that you would change hearts to receive the radical truth of your gospel to become a new creation and to join a family of exiles between this city of destruction and our new celestial city. And help us as a church of missionaries, Lord, to not bend and conform, but to see this place as our place and our people. And we're not just here to watch everything burn down. We're here to invest our lives, to change our hearts. Father, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray and worship. Amen.